Welcome to Sleepist episode number eight with Dr. Gina Poe. If you're new to the Sleepist podcast, we are all about sleep, how to optimize your sleep, what are the coolest sleep gadgets out there, and of course, speaking to the best sleep experts in the world. Today, we're joined by UCLA professor of neuroscience, Dr. Gina Poe. You are in for such a treat. She's a delightful person and a wealth of knowledge. So without further ado, this is part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Gina Poe. When I was an undergraduate, I heard a lecture from Craig Keller about what he discovered, what happens when we are in REM sleep, which is we stop thermoregulating. I, I thought that's weird, <laughs> which is, I think, one of the very best things you can say when you're a scientist is, not Eureka, but that's weird. Why, why is that true? And that, you know, spurs <laughs> you to start looking into why, why that might be the case. Um, but even then, I was an undergraduate, and I didn't think I would be a scientist. So I went off into the work world thinking that I could find some good job, and I really couldn't. I was overqualified for some things and underqualified for others. Um, and I was working as a waitress. And um, just, no, I'm not a good waitress, so I was not doing a good job. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, my, uh, my dad's cousin knew somebody who had a research lab. And um, I thought, well, at least it'll pay the bills a little better than this stupid waitressing job. And um, it was, you know, I mean, there are good waitressing jobs. This one was just a really bad one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so something a little more gratifying, too. Right, a little more gratifying <laughs> also. Maybe actually use a little bit of my undergraduate education, which was great. That's, so, that's refreshing, yeah. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was nice. Now, it didn't pay much. It was at the VA hospital, but it was enough to pay the bills, and, um, and I found it to be really exciting. I was actually doing a project with, um, with the Air Force where we were outfitting test pilots with EEGs to monitor their brain waves while they were flying um, low altitude missions in F-16s. So wow. we got to go out to the Air Force Base and, and hook them up and, and watch their brain waves while they, while they flew around. The um, ultimate goal was to try and find out if in their high G maneuvers they were going to be going unconscious so that the Air Force could switch to autopilot automatically. And they were, right? <clears throat> Uh, they, no, they, <laughs> that would have been, uh, <laughs> you know, they were doing high machine maneuvers, but they were never going unconscious. So really? it was, yeah, so it wasn't the best project, but it was a great introduction to science, <laughs> you know, a team science project that was really exciting. And, um, and we actually got great data from uh, pilots flying um, simulations. Uh, on the Northrop Great Flight Simulator. So we got to freeze their simulation in the middle of really tough circumstances um, and test their situational awareness. And then we can see what happened with their EEG when they were doing really well uh, versus when they were not doing very well. So we did get some data out of the whole project that was just, you know, didn't work very well on the F-16s and it would have been, you know, bad had they gone unconscious. So I don't yeah. know what we were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, that was my, and then as part of that research project, we, I went to a, um, a conference, which was designed um, to get new people into sleep research because there weren't that many people in the world working on sleep at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it was really kind of all the world's experts coming together 
to tell us about critical unanswered questions, what we did know, what we didn't know, including the fact that we don't thermoregulate while we're in REM sleep and, and all kinds of other really neat things. But, um, but I was shocked and appalled about how much we didn't know about what we were doing for a third of our lives. You know, yeah. we didn't know why, but we knew we were vulnerable during this period of time, but no one knew for sure why we were doing it. So, um, because I didn't think I would be going into research, I asked all kinds of pesky questions and made a nuisance of myself and, um, it thoroughly enjoyed myself actually also no stress involved. And, um, then the guy who organized the conference, Michael Chase invited me to apply to the graduate program at UCLA. Uh, sorry, we're going to have to re re record that. Part. No, 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 it's fine. Just keep going. It, this, this adds color to it. I don't like when <laughs> podcasts are recorded in a studio and it's just dead silent. This is real life. It's beautiful. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. So, yeah, so he invited me to apply to the graduate program, and I was still thinking, ah, maybe I'll do public health, maybe I'll be a doctor, um, but I applied anyway, and by the time I got into the graduate program in neuroscience at UCLA, I was totally in love with research, and with sleep research in particular. That's, That's fantastic. I that I feel your passion. I see. I, I feel the smile in your in your voice when you say that too. Yeah, yeah. So you, I, I can't not ask this. What happens during thermoregulation during deep sleep? So that your body's not thermoregulating. Does that then mean that you're getting colder or? Yeah, that yeah. Apply? If the room is cold, yeah, your body is is starting to drift toward whatever the temperature of the room is. So um, it may be one of the reasons why REM sleep isn't very long. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and also probably one of the reasons why we don't go into REM sleep when um, the room temperature and our body temperature is not stable. So it might also be one of the reasons why REM sleep normally follows slow wave sleep because we um, come to a really, it, slow wave sleep is very um, stable in terms of thermoregulation and um, getting our body to a nice temperature. So, yeah. So, so that's, if, yeah. if we can just back up for a second, can you yeah. walk through what happens in the brain during the different phases of sleep? Right. So uh, it used to be thought that our brain turned off when we slept. Um, that that was part of the reason why we slept is just uh, so a So it's not like a light switch? Effect. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, actually, it's our brains are just as active when we're asleep as when we're awake. Um, they're just active, and it's just active in a different pattern. So, our neocortex that's involved in all thought and mo movement, um, instead of being connected, um, that's in a way that's um, consistent with whatever we're doing at the time. Uh, everything fires together and then is silent together at the same time with every slow wave, and and the slow wave is about three zero to three times a second. Um, all of the neurons are active, and so if you look at the electrical activity of the of, of the EEG, you see a big rise in activity, and then they all file silent. So about one or two times a second, we have this big burst of activity, and then everything is silent, and then it bursts, and then it's silent, and then it bursts, and then it's silent. So it's active synchronously and inactive synchronously. In a, it, that's not like what happens when we're awake. So um, so that's not consistent with consciousness. 
I guess. I mean, that's just, it's very consistent with unconsciousness. So whenever that happens, that part of the brain is not um, thinking, it's not acting, it's not doing its thing. So um, that's that burst, pause, slow wave pattern of non-REM sleep. Um, And then after about, I don't know, 60 minutes of that, something like that, um, maybe 70 minutes of that, we go into REM sleep, and REM sleep is where our brains, it's also called paradoxical sleep because our brains are just as active and asynchronous as when we're awake and thinking and moving and doing. Um, so it's not in that slow wave pattern anymore at all. Instead, it's in, uh, it looks like we're awake. But um, the other thing that's consistent with about REM sleep is that our um, muscles are actively inhibited so that we don't act out our dreams, because this is the state where we have the most vivid um, and active dreams in REM sleep. So that's probably what's happening, why our brains are so active, is because we're in our brains, you know, we're running and talking and, you know, doing everything that we do in our dreams. So that's why our brains look like that. And there um, are certain sleep disorders, if I'm not mistaken, where you're not inhibited physically. <laughs> But you still have that active REM sleep state, and it causes things like um, uh, sleepwalking and things like that. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. So that's called um, REM behavior disorder, where we act out our dreams. And thankfully, that's not very common, but it is a pretty dangerous state if you've got that. Um, So that's when you act out your dreams, but you're not really connected to the conscious world. And so, you know, you might run into a wall or, um, you know, uh, run out the door. There's another sleep. The sleepwalking is actually a state that's consistent. It's a dissociated state that's kind of halfway between wakefulness and slow wave sleep. And that's, uh, that's what sleepwalking is. And so that's not as um, usually as vigorously active, but yet still people can walk and, and um, in that dissociated state, you can even do coordinated things like cook <laughs> yeah. or drive. It's not a, not a safe, thing to do but um you know it's a half waking half slowly sleep kind of thing but still not actively conscious yeah definitely not conscious and mm-hmm. um it's definitely sleep so you won't remember it if you can go from sleepwalking back to your bed and back to sleep you won't remember that in the morning because your your memory systems aren't active actively engaged so yeah. what is your perspective on people who claim to commit crimes while sleepwalking, it's Ooh, a possibility, it's, right? Yes, absolutely possible. <laughs> yes. Hmm. I mean, I, I had a neighbor once who, uh, whenever she would take a sleeping pill, she would get into this dissociated state, and she would wake up in the morning not having known at all that, uh, and she'd walk out into the kitchen, she'd have a whole stack of pancakes <laughs> that she'd cooked oh during the night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's a coordinated thing. You have to measure things, you have to mix, you have to turn on the burner you have to (laughs) cook and she had no knowledge of it at all so yeah really dangerous (laughs) yes it does i guess the the outcome of pancakes is not the worst case scenario right no no definitely not (laughs) so are are those all of the sleeps so you have the rem and the nrem phases is there anything else that happens there well um non-rem actually has very various different phases so they have the stage one when you're just falling right into sleep. And that's where you get actually interesting hypnagogic hallucinations, which is also kind of a dissociated state where it's all, nobody really knows about it, but you have these also kind of vivid dreams, but they're brief because it's a brief state. So um, that's where sometimes people 
think that, um, you know, that a monster has run into the room and jumped on them because it's really actually quite vivid, but it's also a dissociated state. So you're partly awake and aware at the same time that you're having this vivid dream. So it's, it can be really scary or really great, depending on what your hypnagogic hallucination is. So that's stage one. Most people don't have hypnagogic hallucinations because it's a smooth transition. Also, that's the state when, when you're falling asleep, um, uh, we, nobody knows why, but you sometimes jerk yourself awake. You know, you maybe you dream you were falling or something and you jerk awake. Right, that's, right. Uh, that's also a, an, an unsmooth transition into sleep. <clears throat> have you heard of the theory that that's like a minor seizure happening in the brain? I have. I, I don't know. It's, it's possible. Um, nobody really knows <clears throat> because they happen so rarely. It's really hard to study <laughs> and you can't right. study it. You animal. can't plan for it. Yeah, you can't plan for it, and you can't study it in animals so, um, because you can't ask them whether they're having a hallucination. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, people just don't know. I mean, it's also possible that as you relax your muscles, um, as you fall asleep, there's still part of your brain that's aware enough to know that you're relaxing your muscles, and so it perceives that as falling and, and sort of makes up the story that you've fallen, and so that could be another reason. That's a perfectly plausible hypothesis. Um, it would be difficult to study, but someone's going to come up with a way to study it someday, I hope. That would yeah. be cool. So anyway, that's stage one. Stage two is actually also not that deep, slow-wave state that I talked about before. Um, it's characterized by these things called sleep spindles, which are really fascinating, you know, about one and a half second long um big amplitude EEG patterns that start small and get bigger and then go small again. And um, that's uh, shown to be generated by the thalamus, which is this deep brain structure that connects with the cortex and usually is the gateway of consciousness. But when it becomes really inhibited, it goes into these um, and generates these sleep spindles. And nobody knew what they were for. And there were kind of some crazy hypotheses um, but now they've found recently in the last 10 years that they're really correlated. The density of them, the number of them per second that you that you produce are correlated with your IQ. So there's huh. been an, yeah, there's been an increased interest in sleep spindles. It also correlates with the ability to learn across your sleep period. So consolidate the things that you've learned during the day. So if even if you've got a lot of sleep spindles, you're highly intelligent. If you don't increase the density after learning during the day, you won't have consolidated that memory across the night. So that so can you speak to that connection a little bit more between IQ and the sleep spindles? Yeah, no. <laughs> That's all <laughs> that we know. That's all that we know. That there is um, one. <laughs> that there is a you know, there's a beautiful correlation. Now, of course, um, if you have far too many, that's also abnormal. So there is a range of normalcy with where this correlation holds. So um, actually one of the things that uh, I saw in a poster once, but I don't know if um, it's going to hold true because no one's done the study, but um, CB1 agonists, you know, cannabinoid receptor agonists, yep. um, increase those sleep spindles quite a bit and to the abnormal levels. It's not just increasing normal amounts of sleep spindles. It increases them so that instead of one and a half seconds or two seconds long, they last in um, the animal that I looked at. 
for, you know, 10 seconds or 15 seconds. And so that's not necessarily good either. <laughs> but we just don't know. We don't know what's going on during the sleep spindles. We don't we don't know whether, you know, long ones are good or bad. Or bad. So, But with the CB1 theory, mm-hmm. the CB1 agonist theory, would that, and tell me if I'm very oversimplifying it, would mm-hmm. that mean that potentially taking something like, uh, like smoking weed, if I if you mm-hmm. had to do that, would that inhibit good quality sleep? It's possible. It's possible that it. I mean, it certainly does change sleep, but we don't really know how. <laughs> you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. I, there's one study out of Brazil that um, that's been uh, done recently that shows it doesn't really change much. Uh, about sleep, it, you know, this overall sleep architecture is about the same, but I think these microstructures of sleep, like sleep spindles and, and theta during REM, might change. It's just that no one's ever looked at it. So, some studies that remain to be done. Wow. Um, but I, we do know that the cannabinoid receptor one a, um, agonists are important for reversal learning. So. Um, if you block it in rats uh, and try to give give them extinction of fear, they won't extinguish their fear. So, um, uh, but these are natural receptors uh, that have natural internal agonists in our own body. So we don't need to smoke marijuana to um, to activate them. It's just something that naturally happens. Um, <laughs> so anyway. You don't so, want to be without them. That's yeah, do know yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it just tends to, because it's connected to this very uh, political issue that I think people tend to misunderstand what the the CB1 agonist receptor is. Yeah. Um, but so we're in phase two now. What happens from yeah. there? Okay. So, yeah. So those are sleep spindles. Um, then we go into our deep, slow wave sleep, um, which is... Um, the the hardest sleep from which you can arouse someone. So that's where um, our arousal threshold is highest. So if you try and wake up someone out of slow sleep, it's hardest to wake them up out of that state. Um, children have the biggest, deepest slow sleep, and it's really hard. If you've ever tried to wake up a child who's in slow sleep, you realize it's really hard. They're floppy and unresponsive. Um, Which is why you see parents carrying like yeah, passed out kids in the middle exactly. of a crowded room. Yeah, <laughs> right. If someone picked me up at, at my advanced adult <laughs> stage, yeah, then I would not stay asleep. <laughs> yeah, no matter what state I started in. But it's also the state um, after you do wake someone up out of that state. It, they, you know, you ask them what they were thinking or what they were dreaming, and they'll usually say nothing. Let me go back to sleep, and they'll push mm-hmm. you away and turn over and want to go back to sleep. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's that's the stage um, three. That's a deep, slow sleep. <clears throat> and and, and then, is this the stage also, sorry to interrupt, I'm so curious about right. this. Yeah, is this right. the stage also where the body is physically recovering, where you have tissue recovery happening yeah. and everything else? Yeah, that's the some really exciting and not um, repeated studies showing protein synthesis is highest, growth mm. hormone release is um, largest and the largest bolus during this state of deep slow sleep so um yeah i would imagine you know if growth hormones important for recovery and uh, protein synthesis is important for recovery that the state would be important for recovery for example from injury or even just the normal wear and tear of daily life 
And would that also be a theory for why people of an adva- a truly advanced age would not be able to recover from, say, a surgery or that just generally you see age-related muscle loss happening? Is it possible yes. that they're not getting enough deep sleep? Yes, actually, that's something that especially um, it goes away with, um, especially with men. Um, women, it stays higher for a longer period of time, but eventually gets smaller for women as well. So, um yeah, it's it's a theory, um, not proven, but it is perfectly possible that that is. And, you know, one of the important things about aging is that it's heter- heterogeneous. So one person's aging doesn't look like another person's aging. So we can say what sure. happens on, on average, but you'll know uh, people like Jack LaLanne, who, you know, is... Um, stays healthy for a long period of time. And right. It might be that their lifestyle interacts with their age and keeps their sleep healthy. It's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But would you say generally it's it's a good idea uh, to focus more on sleep to help prevent aging as a general strategy? You know, I what I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I what I don't know is if it's possible to change that age related. Um, march toward changed sleep, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know at all whether um, changing our lifestyle would change our sleep. We don't know whether um, drugs that we take for uh, to improve our sleep will slow aging. <laughs> you know, these, these are outstanding and unresolved questions that are, are good ones, and I hope someone takes up and looks at. Fascinating. And so we're in phase three right now, and yeah. then I, I guess it kind of jumps around from there, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, normally, um, when you're about done with your stage sleep, three sleep, you actually switch back into um, what my husband, who's a physician, Gary Richardson, calls ascending um, stage two sleep. So that is um, switching from deep, slow sleep back into REM sleep. And you, during that state, you go back into sleep spindles. And no one knows whether the sleep spindles you get in that transition to REM is different from the sleep spindles you get, um, you know, as you're going down into slow-wave sleep. But um, it is, again, characterized by good sleep spindles. And then, and that's usually a fairly brief period of time, you know, a couple of minutes long, and then you go into REM sleep. And for humans, our REM sleep periods average about uh, 15 or 20 minutes, something like that. And that's where we're having those vivid dreams. Um, our hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory, um, is really super active, as is our whole limbic system. Our own whole emotional processing system is really active during REM sleep, um, as active as if we're involved in some sort of you know, emotional event, uh, as we are during waking. Um, not always during waking, but sometimes during waking. So mm-hmm. it's it's super active. And there's something called a theta rhythm that um, you can see in all animals that you can record from deep the, deep in the hippocampus during REM sleep. And that theta rhythm is really important for learning and memory. So um, it's a clue as to maybe what's going on in these learning and memory structures to help us um, consolidate the things that we've learned during while we're awake. And that's a great transition into my next question. Okay. What does sleep do with memory? How does that, right. how does it reconcile? What is actually happening? Right. So I'll tell you the best of my knowledge, which is, um, you know, sort of state of the art knowledge of, of the whole field, but there's a lot of disagreement because um, a lot of studies need to be done still. But so I'll tell you 
what I think based on my reading and my studies. So what REM sleep seems to be for is for that kind of hippocampus dependent learning. And that is um, the kind of learning that involves associations between things that we don't normally associate. So building new schema and um, putting things together that um, are not just simple things that we've already put together before. Um, right. So, so this is kind of really important growth kinds of learning because during REM sleep, our brains are really active like they are during waking and also the um, genes that are involved in um, the building blocks for learning are again active. Um, that's some studies by Siddhartha Ribeiro that are um, heroic studies because they were done in rats because that's the ones we can look at for um, when we look at genes that are active. And rats don't stay in REM sleep for very long, only a few few minutes at a time. So um, so it's it's hard to capture um, a, a dreaming rat brain, although mm -hmm. we say you know, we're not sure rats are dreaming, but maybe, <laughs> yeah. um, um, and see what happens to those genes. Anyway, he found that these immediate early genes that are involved in long-term potentiation, which is the building block for learning, um, are active again during this REM period. Um, and they're not active during that slow-wave sleep state where we're... Um, you know, where protein synthesis is the highest. But protein synthesis is also really important for consolidating the things you've learned because in order to, to turn that long-term potentiation into really long-term learning, um, you need protein synthesis to occur. So both states are really important for, for consolidating our memories um, just in different ways. And, and can I can I ask how protein synthesis helps with learning? Right. So, um, <clears throat> what the way we think that we learn is um, by forming new and stronger synapses, which are connections between neurons in our brain, between these circuits in our brain. So, for example, in Pavlov's dog, you know, he would ring a bell and then present the dog with some delicious food, and eventually the dog learned to salivate just to the sound of the ringing bell. Well, initially, the dog doesn't connect to the ringing bell to the presentation of food, so those areas of the brain that are involved with, with recognizing the ringing bell and um, producing saliva to digest food um, are not well connected. But after um, presentations again and again and again, they actually become connected. The, the physical connections between these areas of the brain form um, they grow and they form, and that that's that requires protein synthesis, the synthesis of proteins for that growth to occur. So, um, so that's why protein synthesis is important for learning, um, because these our brains are actually wired together. Um, there's no Wi-Fi in our brain. <laughs> yeah, that it's it's funny you mention Wi-Fi because I did want to ask what your thoughts are on Wi-Fi and whether that has any impact on the brain. Um, yeah, I don't know. The studies that I've seen um, show that there's nothing, nothing is happening, that the frequencies mm -hmm. are wrong, uh, the wavelengths are wrong, and they don't, they don't affect our brain at all. But I, I, you know, I think it's hard to say, I've learned never to say never <laughs> right. when it comes to the brain. Uh, uh, there are all kinds of things that I learned were not the case early that I realized later uh, with more research that do seem to be the case. So, 
Right. I mean, there's just too much nuance happening yeah. within the brain and too much interaction that we don't even We don't even yet. know. We don't understand. That's right. That's absolutely true. Like, so, for example, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, temperature is, uh, is a, just slight changes in temperature in our brain makes a huge difference to how active our neurons are. And, um, and slight increases in neural activity also cause very localized increases in temperature. So, you know, this is something that hasn't been studied very much, but it's, um, it's a, just a fascinating connection that, you know, it might be that certain frequencies of wavelengths will change temperature, local temperature in our brain, mm -hmm. which could have effects. So, yeah. <laughs> so does more temperature mean more neural activity? Yes, of course, at a certain point. Okay. <laughs> you know, you cook the brain and then it stops it working too. <laughs> right, right. right. No, I, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking more from all the research, especially coming out of Finland, that's showing a correlation between um, lowered all-cause mortality and sauna use. So oh. uh, it's just I'm just curious if there's a correlation there, especially hmm. from my understanding is that they're seeing that people have lower rates of Alzheimer's who use sauna several times a week. So that's that's a curious connection. Right. Yeah. Actually, one of the um, sleep hygiene uh, points is it's good to take a shower or a bath before bedtime because they think that, you know, maybe it's, it helps stabilize our body temperature and warm us up a bit so that. Um, one of the things that happens as we fall asleep is our body cools, and um, maybe you know, warming us up beforehand helps us fall, you know, be more comfortable with that cooling event. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Sleepist podcast. Our URL is sleep.ist. My name is Vlad. My personal blog is vladit.com. If you have any questions, please visit us at the Sleepist website. Drop us a line, ask your sleep question, and remember, we are not doctors, we don't play them on TV, and anything you hear on this program should first be checked with your personal doctor.